we have this in the entertainment industry is to blame as well. We have this sense that space is actually, you know, relatively easy, not a big deal. It's a huge deal. The idea of having a colony on Mars is, is so laughable to me at some level. And most people, I think, just assume that that kind of thing is just a natural progression and is going to happen. But consider that we have a hard time making a biosphere, a self-contained ecosystem work on the surface of the earth with all the resources available to us. We've got Home Depot next to us. You know, we, we can build stuff on earth, lots of resources. You go to Mars, nothing. You got nothing to work with in a hostile environment. The moon surface is even worse, albeit quite a lot closer. And so I will believe colonies on Mars when I see us colonizing the ocean floor. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. I've said and written it before, and I will say and write it again. Tom Murphy's site, Do the Math, at UC San Diego, is one of the best sites on the internet. It makes complex physics simple and accessible. If you associate physics and math with complication and difficult things and things you don't understand, doing the math frees you from confusion to enable talking meaningfully about what to do. These environmental issues are important. And if you can't distinguish between what works and what doesn't work, you don't know what to do. As long as people think that they can just switch, for example, to solar for everything, then they'll do things that lower Earth's ability to support life in human society. As you'll hear, we can't just simply switch to solar for everything. A lot of people think we can. Listen to Tom. You'll hear why not. The thing is that nature is the perfect mathematician. It doesn't react to your feelings about waste or your aspirations, but what you actually do. Tom's solutions and his admonitions against non-solutions point to what works. It's unbelievably simple when you understand the math and physics, which he lays out for you. Once you get it, then you know what to do. The rest is clarity and mental freedom. The challenge after reading his blog is seeing the madness of people acting without understanding these things that become obvious when you get them. The way Tom lays things out, it makes it clear what to do, what not to do, and why, so you can act with confidence to improve Earth's ability to sustain life and human society in particular. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. I'm here with Tom Murphy. Tom, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. And glad to have you back a second time. Just before we started recording, we were talking about what we were going to talk about. I want to frame this. You know, I hope that we can cover as many different things. I would like to point people to your blog as much as I can, because it's one, I consider it one of the most valuable sites on the internet, and including you know, maybe over mine, as much as I'm working on mine. And your view is, it says do the math, 
And you have to do the math to understand things, but it's really about the math is to set you free from being bogged down in stuff that doesn't make sense. Like if someone says, oh, biofuels will save the day. If you don't do the math, you can't really tell. If you do, then you can start speaking more reasonably and, or reasonably, you know, knowledgeably and, and sensibly. But if you don't do the math, you can't really do that. So one, I want to point people to it. And, but you also mentioned that there were a few things from last time that you wanted to, to refine and go over again. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's a big problem. It's a big, uh, actually, last time I made the point, problem is the wrong word, predicament. It's a lot of different interrelated problems. And so we could probably do 10 of these and not quite touch on all the, all the things that I think are really important. And so let's talk space. <laughs> because we were just talking about it off, offline. And I had a friend over here who was like, you know, we'll just go to Mars. That's problem solved. It's obviously, the, you know, when Europe was full, they came to America. So when Earth is full, we'll go to Mars. And uh, there's a lot of that out there, as you pointed out to me. Let's talk space. Okay. So let me preface this with the statement that I, I love space. I'm an astrophysicist. I love what happens in space. You know, I'm a big fan of NASA. I get funding from NASA to do my research. I use the, my project uses the reflectors that the astronauts left on the moon. I, I'm inspired by our space program. I think that's really cool, by the way. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> Sorry I to like to think that, you know, we, we will continue to explore. I'm a natural explorer. And so I get it. Like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan. However, it's problematic to view space as anything like a solution. And let me start by, by analogy. You know, we, we talked last time about growth and some about exponential growth and the consequences of that thermodynamically on the planet and various uh, elements of, of exponential growth. But I think for a lot of people, the sort of um, intuition isn't quite there about exponential growth. So I think it's worth talking about a, a thought experiment where you've got a jar that has, you know, nutrients in it and, and you, you start it with a certain amount of bacteria. Let's say the bacteria double every 10 minutes. That may be a little fast for for real biology, maybe it's more like 20, but 10 minutes is a convenient scale. You could do this. So I shouldn't focus too much on, on what we're going to use. I just like round numbers. You could do this with any number you want. But let's say that you started at midnight one day and you put in the jar enough bacteria that if doubling every 10 minutes, it will reach full capacity at midnight the following day, 24 hours later. And so then, you know, you can ask people, at what time will the jar be half full? So there's a temptation to say noon because that's halfway long. But if it's doubling every 10 minutes, then it's half full 10 minutes before it's full. So Yeah, this was like very shocking. Like, yeah. It's not what we intuitively expect. It, it's nowhere close to what our native, you know, intuition would, would say. So that's a way to illustrate that our minds aren't really geared for thinking exponentially. It's not intuitive. So it's 11.50 p.m. is when the jar is half full. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that itself is rather a remarkable uh, adjustment to and recalibration of our thinking. Well, so now let's say that when the jar was one-eighth full, and so if we, if we back up, that's 11.30 p.m. So you're, you know, you're in the, the final hour, uh, half hour of, of this experiment. The jar is only one-eighth full. Some 
uh, bacterium says, you know, I've done the math and I can see the problem. This is not going to uh, continue very much longer. So let's set out to find more resources, to find more jars that we haven't known of before. And so, you know, most people at the time think, what are you talking about? There's lots of space. There's way more space than not space. So just chill out. One eighth means it's like 80%. That's 12%, right? So it's yeah. like 88% empty. Yeah, exactly. So to most- Plenty of space. To yeah. most people, it looks like resources have, not only are they abundant, they've always been abundant, right? That the whole history of this colony hasn't had to deal with this issue. So why are we even bringing it up? Mm-hmm. Uh, obvious analogies to where we are. Okay, yeah. so this this bacterium does set out to find- more jars and comes back with this amazing news that, wow, there are three more equal-sized jars full of resources and nutrients and easy to get to, let's say, problem solved. There's great rejoicing. We can continue our trajectory. And then you ask, how long will it take to fill all three jars if this rate goes uninterrupted? It's 12.20 a.m., it's, it buys you 20 more minutes. Because you double and double. Yeah. I mean, it's four times more. Yeah. Exactly. It's four times more. And so it doesn't really help. Okay. So you can't, that the finding of, of, you know, three more jars, which is a bonanza, isn't enough to really change the story uh, that growth has to stop. And think about our parallel situation. In fact, Mars has two of the letters in the jar. So we might even think of Mars as another <laughs> jar. And A, it doesn't have resources for us. B, it's not easy to get to. And C, even if we could, it doesn't buy us, you know, more than a generation's time or something like that if we were to continue this growth trajectory. So these are all ways to say that's not going to happen. We're not going to continue this trajectory. And maybe that's not a lot, you know, doesn't surprise some people, but it's worth realizing. Yeah, it seems to me, how are we supposed to, I mean, to get a couple of humans, just a couple hundred miles off the surface is of the earth is like big deal. And I guess you could say, well, to get the Wright brothers off the ground was really hard, but then we got all these 747s flying around now or whatever, whatever the latest model is getting off into space. I don't know if they imagine like a big tube between here and Mars that somehow <laughs> doesn't get tangled up around the sun or what, but it's really hard. Yeah. And yeah. And there's some real good perspective here, which is that let's imagine the solar system, we scale it down so the sun is the size of a grain of sand. Okay, so mm-hmm. we're, we've really shrunk it down. We as humans have ventured a quarter of a millimeter from the Earth's surface on that scale. Okay, so the, the Earth to sun distance is about, uh, on the scale, about 10 centimeters or four inches. We've ventured, you know, a quarter of a millimeter away and Mars, on average, is going to be something like uh, 150 millimeters or six inches away. That itself is a giant distance compared to anything we've ever done. And now if you go to the next star, we're talking about kilometer scales compared to our Unthinkably venturing of a yeah. millimeter. So now I want to generalize what we're talking about here. Your perspective, I, I read you wrote about, you had a professor at Caltech who looked at things in this way. And I feel like it's a simple way of like, how do we get a grasp of this? Because I think a lot of people are just like, like biofuels. It just seems like, well, let's just do that. But you look at 
Like, can you describe your, your perspective and coming to these things? Is that an easy thing to describe? Well, you know, I think as we, we touched on in the previous conversation, I, I came into this assuming that we had a reasonable trajectory into a future of energy away from fossil fuels. And so I would have easily entertained that, yes, biofuels sounds like a perfectly viable piece of that. And it still could be true, but it's very difficult to replicate the scale that we currently enjoy in energy from these other sources. And so when you do calculate how much land it would take, for instance, to replace our, our current oil use, uh, certainly with corn, it's, it's ridiculous and it, it's impossible in the U.S. Uh, so, so you have to come at it quantitatively to understand which, which ideas, uh, you know, how, how big they can become, how much they can scale. And let me go to your page because you approach a lot of different things on with this perspective that I think really simplifies things. And you talked about like how much storage can we get? Can we put a satellite out into space and have it beam energy down to earth? How much things can we make solar powered? Is it easy to summarize what you found? I mean, there's that table that you have of all the different things, what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. I think the the quick summary is it's harder than it might look at first glance that the sun is abundant and that's a huge plus in its favor, how much, you know, power comes at us from the sun, but the practical issues are important. So, you know, the practical, economical, political, uh, at some level, technical issues are, are not to be waved off and, and not just a direct substitute for our fossil fuels. And so it's not clear that we should expect to continue our trajectory. Well, I think it's clear that we can't continue our growth trajectory, but it's not clear that we can even maintain our current energy appetite using uh, you know, some practical uh, set of, of, uh, of alternative energies. The numbers are there. The numbers support enough energy from sun to do whatever we want. And that's where the math comes in. The math can help you eliminate some things that really aren't viable, but it can confirm that some things really are abundant, like solar energy. And then the problem moves to a different domain and one that's more complicated. Which is the, the practicalities of it? Yeah, the, the practicalities, the, the time scale for adoption, the just sheer amount of infrastructure that has to go into something of this scale, the transformation of our society to utilize that different source of, of energy. I mean, uh, if we had tomorrow somehow magically appeared a whole state's worth of photovoltaic panels, you know, comparable to the amount of pavement in the whole country, you know, that, that itself is, is a major undertaking. But let's say that just appeared it wouldn't directly help us right away. We, it wouldn't help us drive places for the most part. You know, maybe 1% of cars can drive on that electricity. But so our entire uh, built infrastructure has to change. And that's a major transformation. So here's another transformation. You talked about the challenges with sustaining growth or the impossibility of sustaining growth as is. So in my life, partly after reading your blog and partly just on my own, I would guess that I polluted and used energy on the scale of about roughly comparable to the average American. Because I would turn off lights when I was in the room, but I also flew planes. So it was a fair amount. Now, 
when I go online and do the online calculators, it's like one-tenth of the average American. Mm-hmm. So that's something like an 80%, 90% reduction in my use. And in that time, as a result, although the amount of stuff I have has gone down by a lot, and the amount of stuff I get has done, gone down by a lot, the amount of joy and meaning and purpose and value and relationships, that's all shot up. And so when people say, how are we going to feed 11 billion people? Or what's going to happen when we fix inequities and now everyone in the world wants a car and beef every night and stuff like that? What are we going to do? And I don't think we've completely lost our humility that we can't learn from others as well and that we can get happier with less stuff. And I think that while the first 5% reduction was hard, the next 80%, the next 70%, 80% was really joy. And I think that's available to pretty much every American, you know, to a rounding error. Now, culturally, will they do it or not? I'm not sure. But what happens if America, Europe, and, you know, the people who are using a lot, if we reduced our consumption of energy and plastic and things like that by, say, 50% or 75%, and the population stayed where it was, and we didn't immediately just raise the population to use up the resources like we were before. Do you have an estimate? Do you have an idea of, like, what would that do? Assume everyone was, like, happier as a result. Well, that sounds like a great scenario to me. Uh, it, It makes everything's so much easier. The scale of the problem becomes more tractable. So now you can tolerate at some level inefficiencies in, in storage or, or conversion of, of uh, solar power to liquid fuels. You know, if, if, if you don't need those resources at the scale that we currently expect them, then it, it makes all those problems easier. So that to, to me is critical to our success in this endeavor, the problems are so much bigger, so much harder if we expect to maintain our current levels. And what I know and you know from personal experience is that we don't have to, that we can still lead, you know, fairly high tech lives. And, you know, we, we still have computers and we don't look like, you know, homeless street people. Right. Uh And, and, uh, Although that's maybe debatable uh, on some days for me. But the point (laughs) is that we can do it. We can live on much less energy than we use because we're not really thinking about it. As most Americans aren't really thinking about their energy choices and resource choices in in general. It's just part of the the fabric of the culture that we live and breathe. And uh, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit uh, in, in that mix. Because that's become my main goal now. Some people are like, let's decarbonize this or let's decarbonize that. But I'm, I want to get people off of material stuff equating to standard of living or quality of life. And I mean, what, what's been your experience? Do you mind sharing your experience of you came into this not intending to find problems? You, you were just kind of curious to do the math if, if I read you right. And then you found out, oh, this is more trouble it looks like there's some trouble here. And that led you to change, I guess, was it to change your behavior or just to experiment with it at the first? It was really to experiment with it. It started with just measuring, you know, what, what am I using? How does that compare to say the averages in, in my area? So getting to know, you know, the kilowatt hour and becoming intimately, you know, connected to what, what that really means, what it translates to making it personal so doing, doing the measurements just to understand 
what I used energy to do. It started with a, a kilowatt. This is a nice little device. It costs, you know, something like 25 bucks. You plug it into a wall outlet or an extension cord, and then you can plug some device into that. So it sits in between the the power source and your appliance or, or whatever you're plugging in. And it tells you how many watts the unit is using. So I up at kilowatt, K-I-L-L dash A dash W-A-T-T. Yeah, like it's W-A-T-T. So it's, it's not a, a, kilowatt. It's a play on words. It's a, it's a product that you can buy on the internet. If, if you want to kill your, um, you know, your, your power usage, this is a tool to at least understand what you are using. And so I learned things like, uh, gosh, this uh, stereo, when it's off, is taking 12 watts just to be off. This, you know, tuner box on the TV is using 20 watts all the time, even when it's not on. And when I turn it on, it goes to 21 watts. Wow. So it just like has a little, it just turns the light off. It's meaningless to turn it off effectively. And, and 20 watts doesn't sound like a whole bunch, but when things are on 24-7, it really can add up. So for perspective, I think the a typical American household maybe goes through 20 to 30 kilowatt hours a day. And so there's a lot of confusion over this term, this, this uh, unit, kilowatt hours, and confusion over that between, you know, kilowatt hours and kilowatts. Kilowatts is, you know, a thousand, one kilowatt is a thousand watts, and that's a rate of energy use. Okay, that's how fast you're using energy. The watt unit is joules per second. Joules is a unit of energy, just like calories is a unit of energy. So 20 watts, that stereo box, multiplied by 24 hours, so in in the course of a day, you're going to use, what, that's 480 watt hours, so 0.48 kilowatt hours. So that's that's a fairly noticeable chunk of of a daily use. Now, when you get to the level that, you know, once I started monitoring my energy, I started cutting here and there and ended up at the more like three to five kilowatt hours a day. For the whole house? And my whole house. And much of that is handled on my kind of off-grid separate solar uh, system. So my utility electricity is something like two kilowatt hours a day. Now, if I've got something that's a TV box that's half a kilowatt hour a day, that's a quarter of my consumption and unacceptable. So I've gotten rid of appliances that are just hogs and don't need to be and replace them with things that are much more efficient. Now, you have to be careful about just going out and replacing and being, you know, feeding that consumerist sort of uh, a treadmill because that is also a demand on resources. But the real trick is when... You have a choice to make and you're you're faced with getting some appliance, you can be very careful about the energy uh, use of, of, of those appliances. And you can measure, I've taken this kilowatt uh, unit to stores before, you know, plug in this device, see what it really does. What does it do when it's off? So that can be very useful. So for me, it started with that, that kind of measurement and just taking stock of what's happening under my direct control in my household why is my house using 200 watts when it seems that everything is off? And finding those things and unplugging them or getting rid of them or, or, or something. I'm reading that it's, I mean, you had fun. I, I mean, yeah, it's like a, was it fun? Yeah, it was a, it was a puzzle, right? It was an exploration. Yeah. I guess, uh, yeah, with, with some discovery. And it's hard for me not to think of like when, 
for me, getting less food packaging, just thinking of how much stuff that I was causing to go into the landfills. But I guess, I think before you act, you're not you, you, but one, one feels, or you feel more, you're worried about feeling guilty. I think, I don't know about you, but like, it's easier not to think about these things because if you start thinking about them, then you start feeling guilty. But what I find what happens is when you actually do something about it, the, it turns to curiosity and wish I'd done it earlier. That's been my experience. Is, and I, I want to share that with people so that people get that because I, I don't think people, I guess maybe I'm speaking to myself in the past that if someone said, oh, you should try this out, I'd be like, ah, but then I might find out. But finding out is a more joyful experience or more curiosity followed by enjoyment. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's not made easy and that can be part of the fun and part of the challenge. For instance, it's very important to be able to see your whole house's power consumption at any given point. And it is really uh, depressing to me how difficult it is made. You can go look at your meter, electricity meter for your house or apartment or, or whatever your situation is. And it is very difficult to learn what is your current rate of consumption. It'll show you how many kilowatt hours you're using. But for me, it might take hours for that to click one unit. So it's very difficult to get a sense of instantaneous rate. And, you know, we call it a power meter, but it doesn't really present anything with units of power, except there's a subtlety. The old units have this dial that spins around. And that dial corresponds to a certain number of watt hours. And it's usually printed. There's this KH factor on the, on the, on the dial. And so you can time how fast that thing is spinning around and get a sense, and you can make it quantitative for how fast you're using electricity. But the new smart meters are in some sense more dumb than that because it, it's, it's really difficult to get this information. But there's often a simulated dial using little LCD blocks that, that come on and then go off. And it took me a long time conversing with my local utility by the way, most people at the utility don't understand the difference between watts or kilowatts and kilowatt hours. So it's it's so universal this confusion that even at uh, at your you know electric utility it's it's not well understood. But each time that LCD block, each time a new one appears or an or one disappears in this simulated dial, it's one watt hour of energy, and so you can use that and figure out, well, how, what is the rate at which those things are blinking on and off? You can get to an instantaneous measure in watts. But it's hard. It's, it, they don't make it easy. But if you enjoy that kind of challenge and, and like having that inside knowledge, right, and, and getting past the barrier and now having information that wasn't meant to be easy, but now you know how to get it, well, even if you don't convert it to units, you could still time how long it takes for a complete cycle of those dots to come on and, and go off. And even if you don't have the real units, you can now turn something off or unplug it and see how much change that makes. Could an entrepreneurially minded person come up with some device that you would, I guess you'd have to put it to where the whole power for the whole, like a kilowatt for the house. Yes, there are such things. I have one. Uh, mine is called Ted, the energy detective. When I first got Ted, 
It came in a box. I was in Boston for three months, went over for Thanksgiving to a friend's house in upstate New York. And I brought this new thing along because I knew one of my friends who'd gone to grad school with me would really enjoy this. So we, we plugged it into his house and we were having great fun learning, you know, what... Turning off the lights. and Yeah. And, and so we were like, oh my God, what is taking like 2200 watts right now? It just came on. It's like... The, and we found out it was the oven. So we go, we turn off the oven to see if that made the difference. Well, this didn't sit very well with the people trying to prepare a Thanksgiving meal. <laughs> and we were turning off lights and doing all kinds of things and exploring and having the best time. Uh, maybe it wasn't the best time to be doing those things. Uh, and Ted was not a welcome guest by all people at the uh, at, at that Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. He was not invited back. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, my mom spent a little time on a farm growing up. And on a farm, people were like, let's create a circular economy. People were like, well, we got some manure and the plants grow better with the manure, so we got to use it. And I feel like this being new is just a result of, it wasn't, people were pretty efficient before, but we've lost it. I think we, there's a big, we had a big stage of business where it was separating people from the source of their power or whatever, the source of their material stuff. And I feel like it's not, it shouldn't be such a big deal to undo that separation. I mean, electrical power is not like something most people are dealing with, but there's a couple of things I also want to talk to, ask you about. And, I want to and just, to, just to plant a seed, I would like to get back to some space talk, uh, but okay. that can happen anytime. <laughs> okay. So the idea of if we were to reduce our consumption by a lot, 75%, I believe from a leadership perspective, people can be plenty happy with that. And yes, there's going to be big changes to the economy as some industries will lose and some, but other industries will gain a lot. But I think that's a lot more manageable than running out of space and, you know, the, the bacteria running out of space and so forth. Is there anything I'm missing there? I mean, assume that, assume that people can be happy with less and that entrepreneurs can recover so that industries that are changing, you know, the economy will recover. Those are big ifs. Is there anything I'm missing there? So I think part of the, the concern is that in a global setting, if one country decides to go this route, they may lose competitive edge over other countries who are not doing this. And so this is a global problem. It needs a global solution. And it would be very difficult to imagine the U.S., for instance, saying, you know what, it's in our best interest as citizens of this planet to step back a bit and use less, uh, less throughput, less, you know, lower economic activity, less consumerism, less resource use. Uh, we can expect, you know, the Dow to go down to a quarter of what it was. It is inconceivable that this would be a conscious choice on the part of our country unless the values of the citizenship change so dramatically that this is what we demanded of our politicians. But that only happens if you've got a groundswell of people who are understanding the, the scale of this problem, the unprecedented nature, the, the consequences of not taking this course of action. And so, yes, that, you know, in principle, that can make things so much better. But who's... Who's bold enough as a country to go that way and, and miss out on the global scene? So what that leads me is to, crazy as it sounds, to try to drive cultural change. And to, I think 
you said people have to understand those things of the nature of the problem, the scale of the problem, the, the scale of the what will happen if we don't address it. And I think that people do want to change, even if they don't understand the sciences, even if they just have to take for granted what they read. I, I think people generally get that they, they want to change. The problem isn't that they don't want to. It's that they're inhibited from it by fear of judgment or they don't want to be the first. But if enough people got, got it started so that they didn't have to feel like they were swimming upstream, but they felt like they were swimming downstream, I think people would be more comfortable with it, even on a global scale. Um, maybe I'm thinking too big. But to me, that's, the, that's where it ends up is my strategy, this podcast and whatever comes next, is to drive that cultural shift to embrace the values that I think people have, but to act on them. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can paint a picture of an economy in a, in a sort of world order that would have a lot more sense and be more compatible with our, uh, our finite resources. And that starts with treating resources as precious. And so imagine that rather than taxing labor, where we're adding value to resources, so that seems like a good thing. Why would we tax a good thing? Instead, we tax heavily the extraction of resources so that every time you cut down a tree or take some metal out of the ground or take oil out of the ground, it comes with a, a large cost. And on the flip side, when you dispose of something, it comes at a very large cost so that it, you know, there's a, a large tax so that you really want to buy durable things that will last your lifetime or maybe multiple lifetimes. So the quality soars in our goods and this planned obsolescence goes away and this treadmill of, of uh, consumerism goes away. And now repair shops become a real thing because gee, it's going to cost way too much to have this, you know, DVD player uh, to dispose of it and then buy a new one because the resources that it took, you know, make it very expensive. But now it's it's more economically viable to go down the street to the person who can fix it. So that seems to me like a huge improvement in the quality of life, certainly in the quality of the things that you you put in your life. And think of, you know, when I go, I don't have kids, but I go to people's houses who have kids and it's this just nightmare of plastic crap. And, you know, just it seems that there there's gotta be a better way. Yeah. I, I, my way, if to people who say, but, but the economy is going to suffer. I say, take the factories that are making all this schmaltz, put them next to the landfill and just have the factory just directly go right into the landfill. And if you really, if you want the jobs and have people standing around and have people driving trucks around in circles and have big boats floating around in circles, and then there's your economy. And it's actually better off that way because at least more of the schmaltz is going right into the landfill instead of a lot of it getting out into the ocean and then everyone has their jobs. Or we just have them not driving around in circles and not have the factory and let them do entrepreneurial things. Yeah, actually, you talked about repair shops and things. And and I'm seriously thinking about my mom when she bought her latest um, uh, sewing machine. She still has the old one before that. I'm seriously thinking about getting a hold of that that thing because- I keep going to her and she keeps fixing like buttons and things for me. I'm like, I should just do this. You know, I already cook a lot more than I used to. I mean, I cook almost every meal. It's really joyful. And it's not going back to the stone age either that I think a lot of people think of. I appreciate you sharing this because it's, uh, 
I've come to a lot of conclusions. No, I reached a lot of places and it's, it's nice to get a check. There's another big area that, of, that you don't, I don't think you do in your blog that much, which is you mostly look at energy and growth. There's also plastic and stuff. And do you ever look at things like that about, I mean, how much production or on another big thing? Oh, here's another big topic that I've been meaning to ask you about, but we can go to space if you prefer also. Is that uh, rebound effects, Jevons paradox, uh, blowback, or what's it called? Backfire, I think. That to me, I think of the, the way I generally look at it is everyone sat in traffic and thought, oh, if there was another lane, there'd be less traffic here. And if you, if you magically had another lane, the traffic would decrease for, or the congestion would decrease for a bit, and then everyone would adjust, and then it would come back, and you'd have more traffic than ever. And it took us generations to figure that, to really get that. And we still have the roads that are lasting for centuries that were based on thinking that it was going to lower traffic, but it increased it. And when I go back to the Watt steam engine, I think people expected coal use to go down because it was so much more efficient than the ones before. Coal use went up because each individual use went down. The energy for each, in, or coal use for each individual use went down but there were more uses because it got cheaper. And so people used the same things more and then they used it for more things. And I look at the amount of lighting we have now is greatly more than it was as a result of having LEDs. And I think we're still below, but I think at some point we're going to be higher probably. Yeah, or another good example is, is refrigeration has become much more efficient over the last you know three or four decades. But probably the amount of energy we spend on refrigeration has only gone up because now people have multiple refrigerators. There's one in the garage uh, there's one in the office, you know, it's more pervasive. So yes, sometimes things become more efficient and it only opens the door to more of its use. Yeah. So I look at recycling and I think of if we recycle, then we're effectively making a new supply of plastic, say recycling plastic. That means the price of plastic is going to go down, which means that people are going to, it seems to me that people are going to use more of it. And I think of like individually wrapped apples at the store. I'm like, if all we do is recycle without changing the values of the system to, or to tax production or extraction, do we risk creating more plastic? Have you looked at, like, I mean, it seems to me that the, the world that we live in today is the result of increased efficiency. I mean, we've, people think increasing efficiency lowers total waste, but they're two different things. I don't know if you've looked at that. Not in any detail, and I haven't concerned myself uh, particularly with things like plastic I think to me, I just see that as a component of a larger uh, problem in just general uh, consumer use and, and, you know, how much uh, stuff we have. And I think last time I mentioned the, uh, the story of stuff video, which I think really illustrates this quite, quite nicely that we are in this something of a treadmill where we're being force fed almost these, uh, consumer products. And you've noticed this as, as well, I'm sure, that that you might have some product that you think is really quite good. You like the features. Um, maybe it's a toothbrush or something simple like this. And so you want to get that one again. Or maybe there's some sunglasses that you think these are the best sunglasses, you know, next time, 10 years from now, when I need another pair, I'm going to look for these. It's impossible to find, right? Things change so quickly and for what reason? It's all sort of market-driven, uh, sort of the pressures that force that continual evolution are not necessarily favorable forces. And there's this sort of obsolescence that goes along with, with these, these goods. 
so that obviously corporations are motivated to uh, build something that's not terribly durable. They, their bottom line is better uh, for doing so. And I think that's a, a malady in our society. That that's that's a an ill uh, aspect of our economy. It keeps coming back to our values. It seems to me, and not examining them, we just get stuck doing what we've been doing. And I normally don't think of financial incentives, but what you talk about makes a lot of sense. I got to incorporate that. Those are not my ideas, by the way. That's that's something that comes from this uh, field of ecological economics that I've looked at. So from a daily, like. But, uh, you know, this is a, a well-studied path. In fact, there are prescriptions for how to migrate from our current economic system to a steady state economy. And it's great that all this has been thought out. The problem is that none of those steps would be naturally embraced unless society as a whole aimed to end up in a steady state economy. You wouldn't do any of these maneuvers by accident. So... There are ways to do this. There are ways to restructure our life, but it can't happen in a democracy until most people want that to happen. And that's, we're pretty far from that right now. Pointing me to, it's a big leadership issue. Sure. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Let's talk space. Sure. Okay. So the notion that I started out with on, on my blog, the, the first post was about this exponential growth and what that would mean. And that 2,500 years, we would be using all the energy from all the stars in the whole Milky Way galaxy. That's a hundred billion stars. It's this absurd calculation that says, you know, basically points out we, we can't expect to continue growing. This also has thermodynamic dimensions in terms of how hot the surface of the earth would get. And so some people's reaction to this was, well, isn't the solution obvious? You're confining your analysis to Earth, but why do that? We have space and Earth is a tiny piece of this. And it's it's true, Earth is a tiny piece of this. And um, in fact, recently I did this computation that I think is pretty cool for perspective. If you look at Wikipedia and, and get the you know total biomass on the planet, it's something in the neighborhood of 500 gigatons. And if you condense that to a single layer, uniform thickness across the surface of the earth at the density of water, which is the density that most life would would acquire, it's four millimeters thick. So we have four millimeters of life on this planet if you spread it out, you know. So that's saying you take an average uh, spear and shoot it through the ocean to the bottom, you know, you're likely to come up with on average four millimeters of life that you've gone through or on the surface of the planet. Obviously in rainforest, it's gonna be a lot thicker and in deserts, it's gonna be thinner. But that that puts a perspective on, on how small life is, how thin life is on this planet. And then you go out and you say, okay, well, all, all life is confined to this really thin shell of, of habitat on the planet's surface. Um, and that's actually thinner than the onion skin on an onion relative to the onion. So, you know, the, the papery, I'm not talking about one 
like chunky part of the onion. I'm talking about the papery outside. All life on our planet is confined to this tiny, tiny, thin shell. Okay, so that's some perspective. And then I, I shared with you the idea that if you put the solar system at the scale that the sun is a grain of sand, we've only ventured a quarter of a millimeter from the from the earth in you know human history. And that Mars is substantially farther away. Uh, it's really hard to get to space. It takes a lot of energy. This weekend, I I went on a tour um, or uh, went to personally tour the Palomar Observatory. I still have um, nice connections there and and they, they still let me in. So, <laughs> But I went to the gift shop as part of this trip. And in the gift shop, there was a, a bag of plastic crap, uh, you know, space things. And... And I'm a big fan, as I said, of space things. And my life has revolved around it to some extent. But there was a Saturn V rocket on a trailer and like a truck that could pull it. And this irritated me to, you know, tremendous extent because I've stood next to a Saturn V rocket in Huntsville, Alabama on its side. Yeah, I saw one at uh, Cape Kennedy, Cape Canaveral, whatever it's called in Florida. It's phenomenal. Yeah, it's enormous it's a gargantuan thing there is no trailer that could carry this rocket by any it's not even close and so one thing that this conveys i think unwittingly to kids is uh space isn't that hard look here's a rocket you know how how hard can it be to build something that you know i could imagine towing with a pickup truck (laughs) whatever so we have this and, and the entertainment industry is is uh, to blame as well. We have this sense that space is actually, you know, relatively easy and not a big deal. It's a huge deal. And so the idea of having a colony on Mars is is so laughable to me at some level. And most people, I think, just assume that that kind of thing is just a natural progression and is going to happen but consider that that we have a hard time making a biosphere, a self-contained ecosystem work on the surface of the earth with all the resources available to us. We've got Home Depot next to us. You know, we, we, can, uh, we can build stuff on earth, lots of resources. You go to Mars, nothing. You got, you got nothing to work with in a hostile environment. The moon surface is even worse, albeit quite a lot closer. And so I will believe colonies on Mars when I see us colonizing the ocean floor. Yeah, or even Antarctica. Yeah, ocean floor, much closer. You've got food crawling and swimming around. That's not going to happen on Mars. Safety is not very far away, breathable air. And you've got all the resources on Earth to help build those things. And so it's such a stretch and it's such a leap but because I think people have seen it in entertainment media, it becomes more real and it seems more realistic because we've kind of experienced it in this weird uh, virtual way. So that that's a problem. Yeah, because people vote based on what's in their heads, not their models of reality more than reality. I believe there's a reality out there. And, and so they're like, yeah, well, there are these things under the sea. I saw Aquaman and you know, if there's problems on Mars, what's his name got back alive. 
in The Martian with, um, I forget the actor's name. Yeah. Damon got back okay. Very entertaining movie and some interesting things. And I read the book. The book was was fantastic because it really hit my my sweet spot of doing quantitative calculations. This was kind of a do the math in space, right? This was this was uh, assessing, you know, how much energy will it take to you know accomplish this task, and how you know how much mass can I get expect to get from from growing some potatoes and. I loved the quantitative quality to it. And I had to suspend a lot of disbelief in how improbable each of those sequences in the whole chain would, would be. So enter- from an entertainment point of view, fine. But you're right. And, and the Sandra Bullock movie and George Clooney, um, Gravity, also beset with a hostile space environment. But, you know, at least one of them survives. I won't spoil which one. Um, but... Come on, that's the survival is is not likely an option. So the two, in, in in a case as extreme as that, and I've got a lot of technical problems with with movies like this. So the two most amazing stories in in to me in the human experience, uh, one is the um, story of the endurance, which is a was a Shackleton expedition to Antarctica where their ship got stuck in the ice and eventually crushed to pieces and they struggled mightily through this real ordeal to eventually get to safety. Not a single person died. And this is, I think the most amazing adventure in the history of, of humanity, I would say. Another one is Apollo 13 where, you know, now it comes back to space. This was a potentially disastrous uh, mission that you know cool heads prevailed and they at least managed to get back to earth so if it's more extreme than either of those two stories which almost all movies are more extreme than those two stories then you've kind of lost me because we've already seen what the extremes look like well i hope that my the story that i'm to me, all this leads to, okay, what do we actually do? On a personal scale, it was what I've done. But then I realized, well, Donald Trump is having a lot more effect on the environment than anyone else. He doesn't know anything about this stuff. And I'd like someone who knows this stuff to to act. And so I decided to try that myself. And that is to say, to try to take a leadership role, but maybe it's more to get something like a billion people to change your behavior is maybe more outlandish than those stories. On the other hand, maybe not. And maybe it's worth trying. I mean, or maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree and thinking it's too complicated. I think something's possible that's just not possible because it's not a technical issue of communicating to all the people that the means of communication are there. Ideology gets in the way. So people have a sense for how they think the world should be or what they want the world to be. And anything that drives counter to that narrative is easily rejected and, you know, just becomes another opinion that can be discarded. Science is just another opinion, and why should we give it much credibility? And the things that I worry about and talk about are not provable. No, nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody can tell you exactly where we're going to go. But I think it's it's prudent to at least listen to plausible scenarios of of uh, blind spots, for instance, that we might have. And I, I feel like I've stumbled on a lot of those blind spots in my exploration. And uh, these blind spots 
those are the real dangers. The things that we see and are right in the open and we all acknowledge, uh, the, those we at least make plans for mitigation because we are aware of them. Climate change is arguably in that category because there's so much awareness about climate change now that I worry less about it because that one's not going to sneak up on us. I worry more about the ones that are going to sneak up on us. And so the ideology, it, it, it relates to climate change in that resource worries and climate change both suggest and you suggest and my life suggests that we reduce our usage. We we cut back. We don't put as much pressure on the planet in, in a variety of ways. Economically, that's seen as disastrous. That is a scaling back. That's a recession. That's that's more than a recession. It's a depression. And, uh, you know, if, especially people like me who talk about getting rid of growth, that is so anathema to the ideology of our capitalistic democratic uh, sort of trajectory that it's rejected and and it's a threat. So what do we have to do to counter this threat? Because this is bad for business. That's really kind of what it comes down to. So, yeah, that's what it comes down to. And I think to me, that's what to go to tackle. And as we near an hour, I propose, would you be up for starting here in another conversation? Sure. I think that's fine. Because, yeah, because this to me is like, this is the crux of it. Now, it seems it's like, the beliefs and the ideology that that's the challenge. But if we don't, if we don't tackle it, if we don't take it on, then I don't, I feel like you would agree that I feel like what you're saying is then that then we can't get out of where, where we're, then we're heading to the cliff and the, and the, the wheels are locked in place and we can't use the brake pedal. Yeah. And I'll just interject that the truly conservative approach would be to pull back, let off the gas because heading for the cliff with the pedal still down is a very risky proposition. And it's what most of the labeled conservatives are advocating. But what have they conserved for you lately? Um, They're not really big into conservation. They're not really looking at a low-risk path to the future. A low-risk path to the future would be, hold on, we might have a problem. We should, should, uh, you know, relax the pressure on the system for a bit and take stock of where we are. Instead, there's this put your fingers in your ears, make a lot of noise, drown out the the concerns that are coming from the scientific side, and just keep keep the pedal down. And that's an ideology. Ideologies can be dangerous. Let's leave it at that for for this one as a as a cliffhanger. Okay. Yeah, literal. And I want to thank you again for sharing this. And I, I just want to end. Uh, at least on my part, for just pointing people to the Do the Math blog. It's just, I mean, certainly if you're scientific, it's an enjoyable read. And if you, I think for a non-scientist, it's still very accessible. And there's plenty of, of after your post, there's all these people who post a wide variety of views coming from lots of different perspectives. I think it's just a wealth of resources. And anything that you'd like to close on, on for this conversation? No, I think I think this has been uh, this has been great. There are a lot of, you know, core core challenges that we're, we're hitting on and, and uh, that, that's what we have to be doing. So to be continued. Okay. The result I get from reading Tom's blog and listening to Tom is living by my values with confidence, not just hoping for the best, knowing why I choose what I do. 
If anyone wonders where my views come from, it's analysis like Tom's. Also, there's Low Tech Magazine, Limits to Growth, the book, the 30-year edition, the book Sustainability Without the Hot Air. There's a couple others. People think that science is hard, and they think that scientists are confusing. It doesn't have to be that way. The end result that I see coming from understanding the math and the nature behind it is that everything points to reducing consumption. It's the only effective solution. And missing from every mainstream message that I've heard clear from Tom's life, my life, and a few others, is that reducing consumption, reducing garbage, reducing waste brings joy. Reusing, recycling, these things seem like distraction. They seem like extra things that you have to do. But reducing removes stuff. It makes things easier. It makes things simpler. Think thorough. And if you think that reducing consumption creates an economic problem, that it will stress industries, read Tom's blog on his conversations with The Economist because growth is a bigger problem. If you don't understand it, it doesn't make sense. But when you understand it, it makes sense. Read his blog for it. Meanwhile, human societies sustain themselves for hundreds of thousands of years without growth. Our growth, just since, say, Adam Smith, has picked all the low-hanging fruit of oil and energy sources, the high-hanging fruit, and now we're digging under the sea for every scrap of oil we can find and polluting everything we can for a few moments of a forced smile, what I think of when we give these little gifts, these little trinkets made out of fossil fuels. Anyway, the takeaway for me is that it's simple and joyful to live with less stuff, and that's the best solution. I hope it makes sense to you guys too. I hope you find reduction a lot simpler. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.